Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his treatise on the anger of God, one of the side issues that Lactantius veers off into and provides what he takes to be a solution to is what we've nowadays come to call the problem of evil in the philosophy of religion. And it's essentially saying if God is so great and arranges things and understands what God is doing and is good, then why do we see all these bad things happening in the world? And this was something that even in antiquity, there were a lot of positions on and considerations of, as we're going to see, the Epicureans, the Stoics, the academics all discuss this. A Christian philosopher like Lactantius, in some respect, can't avoid it. And not just with respect to anger, which he does provide a justification for later on in the treatise. Why did God give us this capacity, this emotion that can sometimes go bad? Well, there's a point to that. But in the broader sense... How should we understand the created universe? And Lactantius in chapter 10, after, you know, surveying a number of different other people's ideas and saying we can see some consensus among them, what can we say? He says that there is a divine providence, meaning that there is an arrangement of things. And how can we describe this? Well, he says that reason declares that there is is indeed a system, an arrangement, a regularity. And he describes these, you know, he's very good at rhetoric, such a vast system of things, a magnitudo, right? Such arrangement and such regularity. So arrangement is dispositio, uh, you know, putting things where they belong and regularity, constantia, regularity in what? In preserving the settled orders and times. It could never at first have arisen, or come into being, without what? A provident artificer, a maker, right? Somebody who forms the things. And then he talks interestingly about God being an inhabitant, as being within the world, and then God being a ruler, gubernator, right? Running things in this vast universe, perpetually governed without a skillful and intelligent ruler. Uh, reason itself declares this. Whatever itself has reason must have arisen from reason. And he goes on, Reason is the part of an intelligent and wise nature, but a wise and intelligent nature can be nothing other than God. So he's asserting a very strong conception, a robust conception of providence here. And then he's going to take this up again in chapter 13, where he's going to consider several different positions. And he begins chapter 13 by noting something that the Stoics do seem to have held as a doctrine. The world was made on our account. And he says, well, this is actually true. So the world is uh, mundum constructum, right? It, it has been made. It has been constructed. It has been formed on our account. Nostra causa for us 
for us human beings, for us rational beings. Okay, so this seems to be a rather unproblematic, stoic position, unproblematic in the sense that we have other places that attest this to be their position. It is a little bit problematic, as we're going to see from other perspectives. But let's go on with it for a moment. He says that all that the world consists in or brings into being or generates, all of these things, he goes on, are adapted to the use of human beings. So, accommodata ad utilitatem hominis, the human race, we could say. Utilitatem, the usefulness, the capacity to turn to things. He actually also uses the word utitur a little bit later to make use of, right? So everything within the world is the way it ought to be. It's, you know, provided to us. How wonderful. And then, well, we get some proverbial flies in the ointment with the academics coming around, the skeptics, and saying, wait a second, that doesn't seem to make sense. Here's an objection to you. There's a whole bunch of things in the world that seem opposed to or hostile or even injurious to human beings. So why in the hell would you possibly assert that everything within the cosmos is for us human beings? Think about parasites, right? Maybe some parasites are good because they keep other parasites out or something like that. But that's one evil replacing another. Or, you know, let's take some other examples from ancient times. Earthquakes, terrifying, was something that happened quite often in the ancient world. How are you going to say that that is actually something good for us human beings or plagues or getting old, seasons being the way they are, perishing of thirst and sunstroke in the summer, dying of exposure and frostbite and cold in the winter. These all suck, right? So what are you Stoics on about? And Lactantius says, well, the Stoics do have a response. It's just not a very good response. He says that you can claim that the things that we think are opposed, hostile, injurious to us are actually not. So he says, the Stoics say, there are many things among natural productions and reckoned among animals, the utility of which escapes notice. But this is discovered in the process of times as necessity and use have already discovered many things which were unknown in previous ages. So the utilitas of these things escapes us. We just don't see it at this time. There is some helpful thing to it. And so Lactantius goes on and he says, what utility can be discovered in mice? And we might in our own time say, well, ecologically, you know, the mice occupy an important niche or something like that. And then he says, what about beetles? What about serpents, which are troublesome and pernicious to man? Is it that some medicine lies concealed in them? If there is any, it will at some time be found out, namely as a remedy against evils, whereas they complain that it is altogether evil. They say the viper, when burnt and reduced to ashes, is a remedy for a bite of the same beast. And then he says, okay, let's say we buy into that. Doesn't that seem a weird way for God to have set things up? You know, waiting for us human beings to figure out later on that we can use these things that we see as injurious to medicine. He says, how much better had it been that it should not exist at all than that a remedy should be required against it drawn from itself? And, you know, this is a pretty good argument. And then he provides what he takes to be a better 
answer. And, you know, this is an interesting one. I'm not sure how compelling many people will find it. So he says, when God formed the human being in their, his own image, that which was the completion of his workmanship, he breathed wisdom into the human being alone so that the human being might bring all things into subjection to his own authority and government and make use of all the advantages of the world. And yet he set before him both good and evil things inasmuch as he gave to him wisdom, the whole nature of which is employed in discerning things evil and good. No one can choose better things and know what is good unless he knows at the same time to reject and avoid the things which are evil. So these are mutually connected with each other. The one being taken away, the other must be taken away. Therefore, good and evil things being set before it, wisdom does its job, right? Discharges its office. So the, the argument here is that, well, without there being evils, you're not actually going to have the opportunity to exercise wisdom, right? Desiring the good for usefulness, rejecting the evil for, for safety. He says, if only good things are placed in sight, what need is there of reflection, of understanding, of knowledge, of reason, right? And this is actually going to play a role as well in the next thing that he's going to consider, which is Epicurus's classic argument from evil, which he phrases in this way. So Epicurus had said that God either wishes to take away evils and is unable, so that's option one, or God is able and is unwilling right? Or he's neither willing nor able, or he's both willing and able. So we've got four different possibilities here, and Epicurus is actually going to throw one of these out altogether. He says, if God is willing to take away evils and is unable, well, then he's not much of a God at all. He's feeble. This is a problem because we could certainly imagine a better God who would be strong enough to remedy the evils that his creatures, human beings, encounter and suffer. He goes on and he says, if he is able and unwilling, well, then we've got a problem, right? Then he is envious. He suffers from this vice of envy, also not becoming of God, right? So we've ruled out two possibilities right off the bat by saying that this can't be the way that we understand God. And then he goes on and says, if he's neither willing nor able, then he's both envious and feeble, therefore not God. And then he says, if he is willing and able, which is alone suitable to God, well, then why the hell do we have evils? What is the source of evils? If God is able to take them away and is willing to take them away, why the hell doesn't he? Lactantius says that this actually does raise an issue for quite a few people, but from his perspective, it's not really a problem. He says that having examined the matter, we easily do away with this argument. God is able to do whatever he wishes. There's no weakness nor envy in God. He is able, therefore, to take away evils, but he does not wish to do so, and yet he is not on that account envious. So we have something like a paradox here. What can get us out of this problem? God can take away the evils, but he's, he's not doing so. But he's not doing so because of enviousness. 
Well, there's a greater good that is resulting from it. And it's this greater good of wisdom. He says that he doesn't take them away because at the same time he gives wisdom and there is more of goodness and pleasure and wisdom than of annoyance in evils. So this is saying, eh, you know, things come out better by giving people wisdom, even though, you know, the world is kind of a messed up place. And then he goes on and adds another thing. Wisdom causes us even to know God by that knowledge to attain to immortality, which is the chief good. So unless we first know evil, we will not be able to know good. We can't have the good of wisdom, which works on understanding both goods and evils, unless there's evils in the world. doesn't mean that there's going to be evils in the afterlife, or at least the heavenly afterlife, or being with God. But certainly here, we need them in order to have these intellectual capacities operating. And so he goes on and he says, for the sake of a slight gain in taking away evils, we would be deprived of a good which is very great and true and peculiar to us. And he says, he concludes the chapter, it's plain all things are proposed for the sake of human beings as well evils as goods. So this is a very interesting approach to the traditional problem of evil. Instead of saying, you know, God's mysterious ways or, you know, some sort of hand-waving thing like that, he's providing an argument that has to do with what we could call the development of the human being up to being able to know God as being the product of a universe that does contain genuine bad things for us human beings. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, Keep studying these great philosophical works.